From 11FS, I'm Sam Mall, and this is Connection Interrupted. Connection Interrupted is a weekly show focusing on individuals across all walks of life whose plans and journeys were interrupted, disconnected, or rerouted. These are their stories told in their words of the obstacles they faced, the challenges they overcame, and the role technology played both as an instigator and as an instrument for positive growth and change in their lives. Computer scientist Dr. Sue Black is a force of nature. From working her way out of public housing with three young kids in tow, to earning a PhD in engineering and becoming a professor at the University of Westminster in London, to publishing a best-selling book on how she helped save World War II code-breaking site Bletchley Park from ruin, to working tirelessly as an advocate for women in tech, she has accomplished more than most of us could hope to achieve in a lifetime. That's the opening paragraph of Forbes magazine's profile of Dr. Sue that was published in March of 2016. A force of nature is an excellent description of Dr. Sue. She earned a PhD studying the ripple effect. You know that situation when you throw a pebble into water and you watch the ripples cascading outward from its point of impact? Dr. Sue is at impact point. She's proven that over and over throughout her career. She's the embodiment of George Eliot's quote, it's never too late to be what you might have been. This is her story. So here's going to be the toughest question I ask you, I think. Yeah. How do you describe what you do? Oh, gosh. Yeah, that is a really tough question. Um, Because the thing is, I guess traditionally people had one job, right? So so it was quite easy Uh, back in the day. You know, like when I was um, a lecturer at uni, I could just say, I'm a computer science lecturer. When I was head of department, I could just say, I'm head of a computer science department. Uh, But now I probably do like 10 different things. So it's like, how long have you got (laughs) (laughs) to to hear about all the things that I do? So normally I kind of weigh up the environment that I'm in and and who I'm with and then just kind of say a couple of things (laughs) out of the many. Well, I mean, you you're a professor. You're a an avid speaker, very good speaker, by the way. And we'll have several links um, to the presentations you give. Oh, cool. You are a an advocate, and we'll definitely talk um, a bit about that. Um, and a, a very successful author. Yeah. Um, a a mother. Yeah, I'm grandmother now. So oh, me too. Four children. I, two, yeah, four children, two grandchildren. I have four children, one grandchild. So it's a, it's a it's a great time of life. I think really really exciting. I love it. <laughs> this is what I found when I turned fifty. I'm very comfortable in who I am. I, I am yeah. going to say that for you. Would you say that's an honest statement? You're very comfortable with who you are. Yeah, I think I think the older I get, the more comfortable I get. Um, and at every age, I felt reasonably comfortable, but then I've realized I could be even more comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> if you see what I mean? So, so I'm guessing as time goes on. I'll feel even more comfortable. Um, and yeah, I just love it. And it's funny because I do think that kind of middle age is it's something that you kind of, you don't want to be middle aged. That's like, you know, how I felt when I was younger. But now that I am middle aged, I love it so much more than being younger. <laughs> I do too. I really, really do. And part of it is that being comfortable with yourself, finding out what you like and don't like, doing things that you I suppose having the confidence to do the things that you really care about and say what you really feel about things, which I don't think I did so much when I was younger. I did a bit, but not as much as I'm doing now. 
And so I'm just absolutely loving middle age. I really, really am. You know, I find that interesting because if you watch, um, I always do a ton of research before these interviews, which means I have yeah. been watching you on YouTube now for about four days straight. Um, <laughs> there is four days worth of videos of Dr. Sue um, really? out there. Yeah. There's quite a bit. It's, it's amazing. I, I love the one in the car, by the way. Yeah, I love that too. Carpool, oh, right? With Robert Carpool. That was my. Yeah. That was one of my favorites. That was just a. Yeah, uh, that. that was a fantastic. We'll have a link to that one. If it actually, if, it, if ever I'm feeling like a bit depressed or like I, everything I do is rubbish, which we all do from time to time, I, I that's one of the things I watch to cheer myself up. I just think, yeah, that was really cool, and I start laughing, and you know, like kind of get back to a bit more of energy. Well, that's and that's the thing in every video. Um, that I watched, I would use this single word to describe you, and that's authentic. Okay. Which I think is a a massive compliment in this day and age, especially someone who is as um, um, outstanding using social media tools to get your message out. Yeah. Um, it, that authenticity screams out cool. from all of that, and. I, I, you actually had on Twitter, I believe it was today. Um, I saw this, and I, and I love this line. Oh, what did I say? <laughs> uh, oh. <laughs> I've been known to kind of like drunk yeah. and stuff, you know, like I tweet, yeah, you tweet know. pictures of me dyeing my hair and stuff. So yeah, so I am a bit kind of <laughs> out there, I suppose. No, no, no. This one, this one was great. Um, it, it was from life on benefits to an OBE. If I can do it, so can you. Yeah, that is a. A fantastic phrase. I'm going to have to explain that a little bit um, yeah. for folks in the U.S., for our listeners. When we talk about benefits from a life on benefits, what do you mean by that? Uh, welfare, life on welfare. There you go. Yeah, I would – to make that an American phrase from life yeah. on benefits to an OBE would be from life on welfare to being honored at the Kennedy Center. Okay. That's about, that's about the closest we can get to an OBE, I think, Yeah. in the U.S., so if you don't mind, let's, let's dial the clock back a little bit and let's talk about your early life. Sure. You were raised down in the, on the coastal side, right? Down by Portsmouth in the UK? Yeah, I, that's where I started off. But, um, but basically, because my dad uh, would go for a new job about every three years. So he moved a few times when I was younger, but it was all kind of around the south of England. And growing up in that is that the middle class lower what what type of, of background yeah I'm just, so both my parents were nurses so i don't i don't actually know what class that is so i kind a of good class joke, joke about it <laughs> i've joked about it as in you know because your class even though we pretend it's not very important in the uk it kind of is at the same time yeah. and um and again it's not very you know I, I find it hard to know you know with some people you know, it was it would be quite clear that they were what we would call working class or what we would call middle class or upper class. Um, but I think for a lot of people, it, it's kind of a bit of a mishmash. You're not quite sure. So I always joke that I was either upper working class or lower middle class, but I don't know which one. Um, so, so somewhere in between, I would say working class and middle class. Interesting that both parents were nurses, though. So they were both in a... Well, that, that's yeah. where they met. They met doing the nursing training. So both actually that, um, giving back to society, actually, in their roles, in their jobs. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The, uh, does that influence you at all, you think, in 
in your career choices? Yeah, it's it's really hard, isn't it? So one thing as you get older, right, is is trying to work out what is actually me. Yeah. <laughs> What's actually the way I was brought up? I mean, I've thought about this particularly after having kids, which I think everyone does. Um, you know, it's like before I had children, I just thought, you know, when we're talking about nature, nurture, oh, it's a hundred percent nurture, you know, like if you bring your kids up a certain way, they will behave a certain way. But of course, you know, that can't be true because there's brothers and sisters who don't all behave exactly the same way. Um, and it wasn't really till I had kids that I saw that they had personalities when they were born. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hadn't really thought about that before. So when thinking about myself, you know, it's like, what is to do with the way I was brought up? What? what's me and then I you know I've done the 23andMe uh, DNA testing stuff and there's like personality traits in there as well so is it you know am I just a big sort of blob of DNA <laughs> that's, that's responding in a certain way or is there really you know have I got any control over what I'm doing of course I have but yeah that's probably just uh, that's not something to get into today but I have loads of kind of random thoughts uh, all around all of that stuff and uh I'll work it out one day. That would be a now that would be an interesting conversation, right? It's like you said, is yeah. it just DNA or or you know, what's the the unique human element, right? Yeah. What's personality, right. what's consciousness, all of that stuff. I think about that nearly every day. Well you're um, right. But, um kids trigger that, don't they? I mean you have four children, I have four. Yeah. None of them are alike. No, exactly. So so growing up <laughs> cool. Um, like yes. you said, down on the, on, if you will, the, the, in the South of England and, and, you know, a lot of this I'm getting from your talks and from obviously the, the different bio on you. Sure. Um, it, it talks of one about you left school at the age of 16. Yeah. Were you bored or, or what, no, what drove that? No, no. So, so, you know, I, I think I would say my family's just like an average family, you know, um, but unfortunately, what happened when I, was when I was 12, my mom died, and then my dad remarried, possibly a bit too quickly, a year later, and possibly to the wrong person. Um, and we moved away from where we lived then. So I kind of found myself at 13 and a half, um, like surrounded, you know, in a new area, not knowing many people, still at the same school. But, you know, my mum had died not that long ago. I was probably quite depressed. Um, there was quite a bit of like emotional bullying and cruelty kind of really for in the sort of new family situation which wasn't fun at all so I you know I went from being just kind of a, an average averagely happy girl in an averageish family uh, to a very unhappy uh, person feeling very depressed I think really about my situation you know my mum had died and and then I wasn't happy at home, and basically I just I just wanted to leave, uh, but I couldn't really leave till I was sixteen. I tried to leave when I was fifteen, but um, my dad said that he would call the police if I didn't go home, and I didn't want to get anyone else into trouble. So I thought I'll go back, and as soon as I'm sixteen, I'm going to leave, and I'm going to kind of put a plan together of how I'm going to do that. I chatted to um, my friend Kate, who was a waitress with me at the cafe down the road. I, I told her the situation and she said, well, I'll ask my mum. My mum takes in lodgers. Maybe you can come and live with us. And, and basically that's what happened at 16. I moved in and uh, was a lodger in a mum's house. Well, I shared a bedroom with Kate. And so Kate and I kind of became like sisters because she looked after me, even though she was younger than me. And um, we're kind of lifelong friends now. She's unfortunately in Australia now, so I don't get to see her that often. Um, you know, but she really stepped in and helped me get away from a, a situation that I really wasn't happy in at all. Um, I, I, 
my plan was to stay on at school. I, I started my A-levels, which is like 16 to 18 in the UK. But because I needed to pay rent, I was working several evenings a week and a day at the weekend. And because I went to the grammar school, I was traveling 50 miles a day, like 25 miles there, 25 miles back. And so my life just became a bit too difficult. All of that together, just it just didn't work. So I ended up uh, falling asleep at school, basically. Uh, and I just thought after about six months, I just thought this is not working. I, I just better leave and get a job. Uh, so that's what I did. I, I left and uh, got a job. Did you have a, a love for mathematics at an early age? I mean, yeah. Or for science? You did? Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, I was always a very curious child. Uh, I always read everything around me um, and more. You know, went to the library to get books. Um, it was before the internet, uh, so that that wasn't really around <laughs> yeah. then. Um, but, yeah, books at home, libraries, school books. Um, I was always reading, always curious. Yeah, really interested in science and, yeah, in maths too. I used to... Um, save up my pocket money so that I could buy math textbooks because for me that was the most exciting thing that I could buy with my money when I was about six or seven I think you know pretty young um and I always loved sort of mental arithmetic and that kind of thing and puzzles and mazes and so you know that's just the kind of brain I had I guess um you are the only person I know in my 51 years of life that saved up money as a child <laughs> to buy maths books well, ever. Again, really? another first. Wow. <laughs> I hung out with the wrong crowd, obviously. Got there somewhere. <laughs> I, think that is, uh, I think that is fantastic. I really do. I, I love that um, about you. So it's, it's interesting to go through what you did. And that's such a pivotal age, right? 13, yeah, absolutely. Um, to, to lose a parent and, yeah. and to have life changes like that. Yeah. Um, so, so to go from there, and I'm, I'm obviously fast forwarding a little bit, sure. but um, it, it does help define you so much by, at the age of 25, yeah. um, where you were, you, you, you talked about having a plan at age 16. Yeah. How did you feel at age 25 with, with everything that was happening to you in life? Yeah. To quickly kind of go through the interim. So I left school at 16, um, started working. Then I moved to London when I was 17 and uh, worked here. For, so I'm still in London for several years and then got married at 20, had my first daughter at 21 and then decided that I would have another baby and then go back to work. So I uh, got pregnant again, but then had twins. So at 23, I had uh, twin babies and a two-year-old. Um, but then unfortunately, wow. what, what? yeah, that yeah, that was fun. Uh, and then unfortunately yeah. what happened about after that was that my marriage broke down. I ended up in a, a women's refuge in London. And after being there for six months, managed to get a place to live uh, on the other side of London from where we were, which is uh, on a, on a council estate in Brixton. So I don't, I don't know what the US equivalent of that is. I think council estates are called um, the projects. In yeah, the we call them I'm not projects. sure if it's exactly the same. Yeah. Um, government housing. Yeah, government housing. Yeah, yeah. government housing um, in an inner city area. But I mean, I absolutely loved it. Um, I loved Brixton. Um, kind of got everything settled um, and then thought, okay, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? How am I going to look after <laughs> these kids? Because now, you know, I've become a single parent. I, I'd not really, that hadn't been what I'd been planning, but there we were. Um, and I 
thought about different options, but I realised that if I went out and tried to get a job, I'd left school at 16 with not many qualifications. So if I tried to get a job, I would have been on minimum wage or a bit above. And with three children, I wouldn't have been able to earn enough to pay for childcare. So just basically getting a job straight away was not an option. And I started thinking about going back into education, the fact that I'd wanted to stay on at school, 16 to 18, I'd wanted to go to university originally. uh, But, you know, circumstances had kind of, I guess, messed that up. Um, So I started thinking about going back into education. I remember, I was thinking about what subject. I remember that I love maths uh, at school. And I just thought, well, why don't I try and get some sort of maths qualification and see if I can get to university? Because then I think I'll have more earning power, really. And that's what I did. I went along to the local college, signed up for a maths course, which was like a fast track course. And uh, that was funny, the first class that I went to, it was two evenings a week um, to get the equivalent of two A-levels in maths. So again, I don't know what the US equivalent is, but um, within a year. So six hours a week in the classroom and 20 hours a week home study. So that suited me quite well. And yeah, in a year, it gave you the equivalent of university entry qualifications. So I did that. The first class I walked into, you know, I was already quite, scared I suppose at doing something so new and different and I was I was quite shy when I was younger I walked into this classroom and I at that time had sort of big um like dyed black this time uh bushy kind of like afro hair and I would have been wearing like um a mini skirt and uh dm boots and uh, a motorbike jacket probably and so I, you know I walked in as a, a 25 year old woman uh, into a room with mainly guys in suits sitting in the classroom uh, and because the, the area is quite near the city in London so I had no idea that that's who the other students were going to be so so I kind of walked in and thought oh my goodness what have I done but then luckily I saw there was there was another woman sitting at the back of the class so I just went over and sat next to her my friend Lorna and um we became really good friends and uh, and actually everyone was great. I had a wonderful time in that classroom and um, yeah, it was a really great year in terms of really building my confidence and at the end of the year, Lorna and I came joint top of the class. Uh, so, so that was really cool too and uh, we both got into um, study at South Bank Uni, uh, which was the nearest university to, to where we lived. And I did. I decided I wanted to do computing because I thought then that technology is the future. Uh, and Lorna did maths. And so this was in the mid '90s, right? When you were doing this. This was 1988. 1988. So from taking a the maths course. Yeah. To get to to go ahead and 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 prep, if you will, for uni. Yeah. To acquiring a PhD in software engineering in 2001. Yeah. That's a heck of a decade. (laughs) Yeah, it certainly is. But it was great. I mean, I loved it. I mean, you know, I've had a hard life, but I have to say most of the time I've been pretty happy. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Think about what you just said, though. That's a fantastic line. And you tell this a lot in your talks. Yeah. And you did. You, You had a tough road. Yeah. But like you said, you... 
you made the most of it though. Yeah, I guess so. But I mean, that doesn't mean that I've not had times when I've been desperately depressed. Oh yeah. Because I a hundred percent have had a lot of those too. But I would say, in, I think I could just guess my, maybe I'm just lucky and that my natural disposition is that I'm just generally happy. Uh, and then now and again, things get on top of me like everyone. And I just think, oh my God, what have I done? This is all so awful. But then I, you know, somehow I get out of it. Um, and I and I think you know when I'm talking, one of the main messages I try to get over to people is we all get shit times, right? It's not like every you know like lots of people have a wonderful time all the time. That just doesn't really happen. We all have difficult things happening to us, and and the thing that that I think that works, so that the way to get through the difficult times is to keep going. I just think it's, you know, like sometimes you just despair, you know, and you just think, I just can't take any more of this stuff happening to me. But just kind of keeping going hour by hour, day by day, gets you through to the other side and then you get back into the good times again. You know, so I've had some awful things happen to me. Um, You know, one of the, the worst most recently was my brother committing suicide. You know, and, and stuff like that is just so horrendously difficult to cope with. Um, you know, and I, I I just have found that just keeping one foot in front of the other. If you're not feeling so great, look after yourself, be nice to yourself, but just kind of, you know, gently keep going through the difficult times and get back into the times that are a bit better. And then, you know, gradually things change and... You know, life life is a complete cliche, but life is a roller coaster. You know, you're down some of the time, you're up some of the time. Um, but to get the up times, you have to go through the down times. Uh, I, I love this this idea of foreshadowing a little bit um, as, as I was reading through, um, you know, the different yeah. bios about you and then also the different talks that you gave. Your PhD that you acquired in 2001. So this is in software engineering, but here's what I love. Yeah. You did research on the ripple effect. So the idea of all these one-off events in your life and the ripple effect it had and the life decisions you made or the path that you took. And now and then everything that you started doing for literally everyone else. That's what I love about you, by the way, is I, I, I talk about this with my kids constantly, right? And and it's something I embrace in my life is yeah. is thinking about others, right? And, and, and what I can do, yeah. um, to help others. Yeah. I love that you researched the ripple effect. I, that is, un- that's just so, <laughs> this should be your license plate for your car. Ripple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it is though. It's, I actually, I had that circle that might even be the name of this episode is the ripple effect, but it really is. I mean, when, when, you know, we've talked through your early life, and all those events that happen, and you can you can visualize that, right? You can see the the ripples going out from that, and and kind of how it affects you. So there you go. It's when you do your when you do your biography, <clears throat> your autobiography, Sue. Yeah. Oh, give that oh the title. maybe. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's true, perfect. isn't it? I hadn't thought about that. So 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 let's talk a little bit. I mean, there's so many things to touch on, but you know, for the listeners, you know, we've talked about, if you will, your early life. And and like we said, the trials um, and tribulations that you kind of went through, but then to go from that to, you know, what we said, PhD in software engineering. I love that you started this program, Tech Mums. And that's mums for those in the US, M-U-M-S, which actually sounds a lot better than moms, by the way. 
Um, we, we lived in the UK for like five years, raised our kids in York. And I love getting her the mum cards, my wife. And she loved it too. We've kept all of those. It just sounds so really cool. What is Tech Mums? What, what was the idea behind it? When did you found that? Yeah, so I founded it um, five or six years ago now. And what I was trying to do, so I think, so I'm 55 now. I think I hit 50. So I guess it was about five years ago. And um, I, so, you know, kind of like to come up to date with my career, I'd, I'd had, I think, 20 years in academia uh, by then. So, you know, so I, so I did my degree, and then I started a PhD. During my PhD, I became a full-time lecturer um, at uni, so like an um, assistant professor, I think it is. And then, uh, and each time then that I could apply for promotion, I did. So basically, I kept going for promotion and found myself, I don't know, say eight years later, I can't remember exactly how long it is, or 10 years later, as head of department at the University of Westminster. I did that for a few years. Then I moved over to University College London. Uh, I'm now an honorary professor there in computer science. Um, so, but about five years ago, I just thought, well, so now I've had a successful academic career. Um, I've, I've done all these things. So I've ha- had this kind of work career, but I've also done things outside of work, like setting up the UK's first online network for women in tech um, 19 years ago now, which is crazy. That's such a long time ago. And, and um, also running the campaign to, to save Bletchley Park. So I oh, we're going to go there, don't worry. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah that's I thought coming. I'd just, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Saving um, that one for the back end of this. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so I kind of, but I've kind of done all the stuff at work and then I've also done these other things outside of work. And I kind of got to about the age of 50 and I was just thinking, possibly as part of a midlife crisis, you know, what what is my thing that I'm going to leave the world uh, also, you know, my kind of legacy. Um, so what's my legacy? And also, how am I going to get everyone to understand that technology empowers everybody to lead better lives themselves in terms of being able to access more opportunities in all sorts of different ways. So it, it empowers individuals but it also empowers companies so companies with employees that are tech savvy are going to have much more innovation going on and be much more flexible and responsive organizations to kind of take up the challenges that are coming now that we're operating in a global marketplace and also for whole countries and basically the world um, countries that have got individuals who are tech savvy within them you know, that country is just going to run better. There are going to be people with, with ideas about how to sort out the massive issues that we have around global poverty and that kind of stuff. So I kind of see technology skills, uh, digital skills as being a massive enabler at all of those different levels for everybody. And I was just thinking, how am I going to get everyone to understand that this is an issue that we need to help empower everybody with digital skills to help them empower themselves um oh sorry about that that was i don't know if you can hear that something fell down the stairs (laughs) (laughs) that's real life right there everybody that's that's staying in because that was incredible there's a plumber in the house by the way Shout out to my plumber. Hey, hey, hey Carl, how you doing, man? <laughs> I'll find out what that was. Uh, in a minute. Like I said, authentic, everybody. Uh, 
<laughs> Fantastic. Oh, um, so, you know, I we need everyone to have digital skills so that we can just take up all the opportunities there are and also solve all the problems that we've got around us uh, right across the world from the individual level up to the global level. So I was like, what am I going to do about that? So I, I started an organization. Um, actually, at the beginning, it was called the GoTo Foundation, um, named after GoTo's in programming and also trying to get everyone to go to technology. Um, and what I wanted to do was to get everyone to, to realize that they needed digital skills and produce, produce um, content for them to be able to do that. But I was just one person and um, I didn't quite manage to do that. But it was in my head that I needed to do something. So I thought, okay, I'll start small. I'll run some workshops with kids, like seven-year-old kids, teaching them programming, app design, uh, and uh, stuff with Raspberry Pis. And so I came up with this small program of workshops to run with seven-year-old kids. And so we ran that across a day and with a few hundred seven-year-old kids. And I found that that worked really well with seven-year-olds. So I wanted to test out whether seven-year-olds can do that kind of stuff. Um, because I think the kind of the thought in the back of my head was, if I can get seven-year-olds to do this and they enjoy it, then surely no adult can say it's too difficult. And what I really wanted to do was to, was to, to do the same kind of thing with adults. Um, so we had the kids doing it during the day, then we'd invite the parents in at the end of the day to have a go-to and get the kids to kind of show their parents what they've been doing and get the parents to have a go-to. And what we found was that in general, not everybody, but in general, the dads would kind of step in and like have a look and be interested in what the kids were doing. And the mums would be interested, but not so keen to step in and have a go uh, themselves. And of course, that's not everybody that was there, but I just noticed that kind of happening around the room. And that was just like the seed of a thought for me, thinking, okay, so why don't we why do I focus on teaching mums technology skills? Because basically what I want to do is to get out to everybody. And I was trying to think of the most effective way to do that and which group to target to make that happen. And I thought, well, if we start with mums, we can teach mums tech skills. So that will empower them. So that's kind of one box ticked for me. We'll empower mums with technology. So that's good for them as individuals. You know, they might find opportunities to go back into the workplace, set up their own business, go into education. Uh, so that's good. But then if we affect the mum's lives and empower them around technology, they'll be more positive about technology. So then maybe they'll encourage their kids to do tech uh, stuff too. And also now that kids are doing uh, more tech at school, then when the kids come home, the mums will be interested in what the kids are doing. So they'll provide an environment um, that's more kind of tech friendly, I guess, for the kids. And of course, that's a stereotypical family. Uh, and we know, you know, of course, not all families uh, have mums that are at home setting, kind of setting the environment. But um, in general, that's still how most families are. And so we can empower the mums. And so the mums will get the whole family interested in tech. And then also mums uh, are probably more likely to then go out to the extended family uh, and maybe teach the extended family tech skills or things they think might be useful for them. Um, but generally just going to be more positive about technology. And there's studies from uh, the developing world which show that if you get mums on board with things, then that's the quickest way to get, you know, kind of as many people on board with ideas as possible, as quickly as possible, because the mums will share the ideas and talk to each other about them. Um, and then we found some research that shows that the main 
influencing factors on kids doing well in literacy and numeracy at age 11, uh, at least in the UK, are their mum's education and the home environment. So it kind of ticks those boxes too in terms of enabling the kids and the community, the family and the community. Uh, and then also then we'll create women in tech, you know, some more uh, female ambassadors in tech, which we need too, because there's about 20% uh, in the UK, I think in the US too, about 20% women in technology, we need more women in technology. So some of those mums will hopefully go on to work in the tech industry, um, using their tech skills. And so we'll create more female ambassadors, tech ambassadors, and just kind of a general buzz about technology will get more people excited about technology. And I think that will counteract the kind of negative stuff that we get quite often in the media. So that's kind of how the whole tech mum thing came about. And I was was smiling because I'm like, oh my God, she is being so nice and not going off on the whole issue of... Well, one, where there was a study that just came out this week, and I know you saw it, about the pay discrepancy for women, um, especially in London. I think it was a... Yeah, it was higher in London. Oh, it was ridiculous, right? Um, And, you know, obviously we see that in the U.S. um, when it comes to STEM studies. Um, So when we're... and, And you're a massive advocate for STEM as a whole, right, for everyone. But this idea of... And I think it's... I think it's just because I maybe because my whole house is dominated by women. Um, so three daughters, my wife, I think my dog, so my dog, um, everybody in my house is a woman. But I, what I find so important is is role models, right? Is the idea, especially when you're young, and I love what you said about about the, 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 the mom being active and being able to see that and, and being able to understand uh, code and the importance of that because you're, you're modeling that for your kids. Your kids, so don't laugh at this. Have any of them gone into science or STEM? <laughs> oh, I did laugh. Um, <laughs> I'm so, setting you up for that. Yeah. So my older daughter, um, she she's done various things. She she trained as a chef, and is a really great chef. Uh, but then she got fed up with the sexism in the uh, catering industry. So she moved over to technology <laughs> and um, the last job that she had, she was working as the, the kind of person that understands the business and the technology needs uh, within government. So she was working in the Department of Transport in the UK. She's you just know what's so great moved... about that, Sue? Yeah, go on. I yeah. was just reading this in a book today um, and was talking about the difference between chefs and cooks because a cook, a cook follows a recipe a chef creates. So to have that background of being an actual chef and then going into technology is a beautiful mix. Actually. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. That's a good point. I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you about that. Later. <laughs> what that's, is uh, interesting? Yeah. So yeah, she's just moved to Nigeria. She met her. I love this story. She met her fiance on Instagram in China because she was in uh, Guangzhou looking for places to, um, to go as a tourist and because you can't get Facebook uh, there. <laughs> That's right. Um, so she ended up looking at Instagram and, uh, and just started chatting to people that were posting photos in Guangzhou and ended up chatting to this guy who, in a nutshell, she's getting married to at Christmas. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to ask you, you have a wedding to go yeah. to in Lagos, right? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's their wedding. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I can't... Um, 
can't wait for that. That's going to be really exciting. So that's my older daughter. Then I've my twin sons, uh, my older twin son, Sam, he is an economist. So Good name, a, by the way. Well, well yeah. done. So oh, I'm yeah, it's true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so he he's an economist. He works for the Behaviour Insights team. Um, which I don't know is is kind of like nicknamed the nudge unit in the UK. Um, <laughs> Outstanding. It's, it's to do with, you know, free economics, if you don't know. Um, mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, so uh, David Cameron, who was the prime minister, set up the behavioural insights team, I don't know, about eight years ago, maybe more now in the UK, um, to look at the kind of free economics kind of stuff and how to apply that in government usefully. And so my older son, Sam's worked for them for quite a long time now. And he set up the Singapore office. So he now lives in Singapore with his wife and my grandson, Felix. Um, and then my younger twin son, Ollie, also works for the Behavioural Insights team now. He's their finance manager. Um, so so the thing is, they, they're all good at technology. They are. Um, and they use technology kind of like in a very savvy way in their jobs with whatever they're doing. So even though it's only really Emma that's ended up with a tech role, you know, tech job, they're all really good at it. Um, and then my, I've got a 13 year old daughter, Leah, who's still at school and uh, yeah, she's good at ICT as it's called at school. Um, and, and again, very tech savvy. And I was just watching my grandson, Felix actually yesterday uh, because he's got um, a tablet, you know, and he's, you're just completely au fait with kids, YouTube, you know, he probably knows how to use YouTube better than I do. Right. Um, and, uh, but it's great. I, I feel very excited about kids that are now growing up with, you know, using technology from the age of two, one, two, and, you know, what are the things they're going to come up with? What ideas are they going to have about how to use technology to solve massive world problems and stuff? I, I get very excited about that because we've kind of, you know, our generation have grown up. I didn't really do much with computers till I was in my mid twenties. Right. So yeah, they're the first it's different gener- to growing up with it. Yeah, they're the first generation where it's literally just part of them. You know, we had to learn, right? I mean, we're I'm 51. You know, we, you know, we, again, I didn't have computers in school, right? It was as well after that um, that I learned them. And and my, I have a 12 year old son. It's the same way, right? It's intuitive to him to be able to uh, take your pick. Right. But when it comes to technology, it's it's intuitive. His brain actually works differently. Um, th- th- thank God than mine. And I, <laughs> so it, it is. I agree with you. It's fascinating to see um, how humans are going to change or evolve, I guess, a better word with technology as part of that. All right. So let's get to the book. All right. Um, and when I say the book, we're going to talk about saving uh, Bletchley Park. So this is going to be interesting. This is actually how I first became aware of you. By the way, I was asking, I was doing a, a, a study for SWIFT, the payments network. And uh, we were talking about women in banking and in technology as a whole. And I reached out to my network, folks I know, to say, who do you consider the most brilliant, right? Who do you consider the folks I should be looking out to and reaching? And David Birch, very good friend of mine from Hyperion Consulting in the UK. I love David. Within a second of me asking that, came back to me and said, Dr. Sue Black. And I replied back to him, Who? <laughs> I live in Florida, you know, give me a break. Um, but that was his, without even a moment's hesitation. David said, Dr. Sue Black. And um, that's when I started following you on Twitter. And then I was on a flight and I watched The Imitation Game, the movie, the Hollywood movie. Benedict Cumberbatch was in it with, with Alan Turney. 
Um, and if a very, very Americanized Hollywood movie, meaning that World War II ended thanks to one man <laughs> in the movie. And I remember I actually put, I think I tweeted something about how I really enjoyed the story. And you actually replied to me in a tweet and said, oh, if you only knew the whole story. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> you did. And it was one of my, I went, oh, okay. And that got my curiosity peaked. So if you don't mind, would you mind telling a little bit about um, Bletchley Park? What, what, what was it? What was with the 10,000 people that worked there? What's the significance of that in, in world history? Sure. Well, so Bletchley Park is where the codebreakers were during the Second World War in the UK. Um, and I guess my first interaction with it, or my first visit there, is about 50 miles north of London. So, as I said, I set up BCS Women, the UK's first online network for women in tech, and got invited to a meeting as chair of that group in 2003. So, at that time, all I knew about Bletchley Park was that it's where the code breakers worked and that I think that's about it really. I didn't really know anything else. And so in my mind's eye, I thought it was probably like 50 old blokes for some reason wearing tweed jackets and <laughs> smoking pipes and doing the Times crossword and yeah. maybe a bit of code breaking on the side. Literally um, the Hollywood movie, by the way, you just yeah. described, you just described <laughs> the imitation game. Well, With how one did they get that out of my brain? I don't know. No, so no, so that's how I, you know, I describe it in my book. Maybe they read my book. <laughs> um, but also, it's like jumping ahead in the story. But also, when um, Stephen Fry was asked to describe it, um, he said exactly the same thing. But I'd said that to him at Bletchley Park. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> so I just think after I said what I thought. He's he said almost exactly the same words when he was asked, like a year or two later. I thought that was quite funny. Um, but anyway, I'm jumping ahead. So I went there in 2003, went for a meeting, walked around and saw these guys who were kind of putting together this amazing feat of engineering. I couldn't work out what it was. So I went over to talk to them and asked them what they were doing. And they said they were rebuilding Turing's bomb machine, which is basically the machine that you see in the imitation game. So they were rebuilding that because at the end of the Second World War, all of the machines that had been created to industrialise the code-breaking process had been destroyed. And so there are stories, I don't know if it's true, that they were all taken apart and cut up into pieces smaller than a, than a human fist. That was what they were asked to do, and then buried. So they were cut up into very small pieces and buried all over the place so that no one could ever recreate them and kind of find out how we'd managed to kind of uh, listen in and uh, yeah, industrialise the code-breaking process. So I was chatting to them. They told me all of that, and they were creating the first rebuild of of Turing's bomb because they'd all been destroyed. Um, so this was in 2003. So I thought, wow, that's so exciting. Um, they asked me why I was there. So I said, oh, I'm here representing this group of women in computing. And they said, oh, did you know that more than half the people that worked here were women? So I was like, no, because in my head it was like 50-year-old blokes. Uh, so I said, how many people worked here? And they said more than 10,000. So I was completely blown away. You know, it wasn't like 50-year-old blokes in a room. <laughs> it was more than 10,000 people, right. and about 8,000 of them were women. So I was just amazed. I went away after that visit thinking I've got to do something to raise the profile of the women that worked here because, and, you know, I'm a woman Sue. in tech. Yes. And, and Dr. Sue, by the way, just, just to emphasize this for our listeners that are not good at history, these were people with paper and pencils. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, that's that's what we're talking about. Is is ten thousand yeah, yeah, yeah. brilliant, brilliant individuals, men and women, yeah, working to to end a, a world war. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, yeah, so I went away that time thinking I've got to do something to raise the profile of these women that worked here because I didn't know there were any women working there. And if there are 8,000 women there, we need to get that story out there so that everyone knows about what they did and their contribution. So I went away and finally managed to get some funding from all history projects, which we called the Women of Station X, where we recorded the memories of some of the women that had worked there. And then at the launch of that project, the... Um, director of Bletchley Park at the time gave a talk and he said that if well he said that Bletchley Park was teetering on a financial knife edge and that he was really worried that the visitor numbers would drop at the time everyone was worried about um a swine flu epidemic in the UK Uh, and he said if the number of visitors to Bletchley Park dropped he was worried that they wouldn't have enough income they'd have to close because most of their funding came from visitors to the site paying on the gate so I just thought well that's wrong you know that's wrong all those people work there Um, you know I, I need to do something about it but I didn't straight away and then a couple of months later I got invited up to a reception at Bletchley Park so it was my second uh Uh, my next visit and uh, this time I did a tour of the whole site with a veteran so someone who'd actually worked there we did a whole tour of the site he told us all about the history of the different buildings and we just ended up looking at hut six uh, at the end so that's the kind of for me anyway iconic um, hut with the blue tarpaulin over the end which looks like it's going to fall down um, anytime uh, soon and the uh, veteran was saying, you know, the work that was done here is said to have shortened the war by two years. And at that time, 11 million people a year were dying. And um, I just thought to myself, and this place might close. You know, that can't happen. I've got to do something about it. So so that time I went away thinking I need, to, you know, I've got to do something about this. I need to let everyone that I know, uh, know what the situation is and yeah, I was just kind of, I guess, angry, really, that, that somewhere that saved 22 million lives was in danger of closing. So by that time, I was head of department at the University of Westminster. I emailed all the heads and professors of computing in the country saying we've got to save Bletchley Park. I sent round a photo of the iconic Hut 6 with a blue tarpaulin. And I sent round a link to a petition that was on the 10 Downing Street website at the time, which someone else had set up and asked them to sign it. And the, the petition was asking the UK government to save Bletchley Park. And yes, yeah, so I sent this link round to the petition and I checked it a few hours later and noticed that lots of really famous to me anyway, professors of computing from around the country were signing the petition. So I just thought, oh, oh, so they, you know, they think the same as me that we need to do something about it and so I've got their support so I chatted to my friend at work who was also a big fan of Bletchley Park uh, John and said what else can we do and he said why don't we write a letter to the Times so so John drafted a letter I sent it around to all the heads and professors of computing in the country and and then uh, 97 of them signed it almost straight away and then I thought okay what else can I do I contacted all the journalists that I knew which at that time I think was four it wasn't very many but I and sent them the story and said you know I think this is a story and luckily Rory Kefflin Jones who's the BBC's technology correspondent got back to me quite quickly and in a nutshell said 
um, that he would help me, you know, promote the situation and try and get me on BBC News and uh, the BBC Today programme, which is like the radio programme, which everyone listens to uh, in the mornings here, like news programme. And so that really was the beginning of a campaign to save Bletchley Park. You know what you are, Sue? What? And take this in the right way. <laughs> How many times have you heard that phrase? <laughs> you know what you are? And take this completely in the right light, okay? Um, yeah. You're you're the person or you are the stone that gets thrown into the water that, that initiates all this, you know? I'll keep going back to that ripple comment. But you are. You're the catalyst. You're the... You're that first mover because, like you said, it obviously there was there were so many people that cared. But again, it takes that one person, right? It takes somebody to actually overcome inertia, and and that's what you are. I'm sure there's a technical physics term for it that I don't know, but whatever the hell that term is to overcome inertia, that's that's really what you are, and that's what I find so amazing for stories like this. Because by the way, I love history. Um, I don't. I don't love maths. I apologize. Um, that is not me. But I love history, um, and I find everything about this just to be amazing. Like you said, it's something you can't lose. But what I love, what I love, so obviously you were able to get so many people involved in this. But it wasn't like Stephen Fry was in your Rolodex. No. So no, not how at all. in the world. And by the way, we do know who Stephen Fry is in the U.S., by the way. So that's saying, all. well, he wrote a black cab. Oh, yes, around, of course. You know, remember that? He took yeah. the black cab and rode all over yeah. the U.S. So how did how in the world did you get him to jump on board for this? Well, I mean, it was just <laughs> I was home. So, you know, so after um, so I managed to get on the BBC, got the message out there. So that was great. But then not a lot really happened. Uh, after that and so I was like I need to get everyone to know that you know we need to save Bletchley Park and a few months after that so towards the end of 2008 started using Twitter and realized quite quickly that actually Twitter was going to be a massive help in finding people that cared about Bletchley Park and and kind of getting them on board with the campaign because just 2008 Twitter was not that big yet no no it wasn't at all yeah Yeah. but um but I I discovered it and just thought this is the thing this is the thing that's going to help me because I realized quite quickly that just by typing Bletchley Park into the search box in Twitter I could find everyone in the world that was tweeting about Bletchley Park <laughs> wow. that one simple thing on its own and yeah. because of the way Twitter works I could then start a conversation with all of those people and then I could ask them to tell their friends about Bletchley Park and then get their friends to tell their friends. And, oh my and God. kind of, you know, like a ripple effect. <laughs> oh, I was going to go there, but I was tired of hearing me say it. <laughs> so, Sue, yeah. I'm getting you the T-shirt. It's coming. It's, your face is going to be in the middle. You know, yeah. the caricature. Oh, yeah, God, I hair, can see it now. the ripple's yeah. going out. Oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah. No, that is so cool. It's happening. Yeah, yeah, I love it. But that's... Yeah. That is exactly what you did. You're yeah. so right. And, and for free, by the way. Oh, yeah. Everything you did free. didn't require funding. No, 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 yeah. absolutely. Yeah, and so I, so I realized 
you know, very quickly from, from kind of when, in fact, the first time I looked at Twitter, I just thought, what is this rubbish? But then when I had a campaign in mind, <laughs> you and everyone else, yeah, exactly. So I say I signed up in 2007, spent half an hour with it. And I was just like, no, that's not for me. But, but then when I was trying to uh, run a campaign and ended up um, chatting to some friends at a conference about it, and they showed me on their mobile phones what it could do. And I was like, Oh my God, yes, this is the thing, you know, it really changed uh, the way that I saw it. Um, so kind of started through Twitter, finding some people, including some great social media people, um, which really, you know, helped us make a, a big impact and taught me a lot about how to use social media. So that was like the end of 2008. And then one night I was um, sitting at home, kind of looking at Twitter as you do, like, you know, scrolling through. And um, I saw this photo of Stephen Fry. Uh, a selfie of Stephen Fry in stuck in a lift in Centrepoint, which is like a tower block in the middle of London, um, with a bar at the top. He was stuck in the lift and he tweeted something like that they'd pressed the emergency button and phoned the number on the wall, but they were still stuck in the lift and no, no one was coming to get them as far as they knew. So they thought they'd try tweeting a picture, sorry, tweeting a selfie to see if anyone would come. So I saw that photo of Stephen Fry and I just thought, Stephen Fry, he loves history. He loves technology. He must love Bletchley Park, right? So I Googled Stephen Fry Bletchley Park and I found some quotes from him from after the stuff that we'd done on BBC News. Um, one of the uh, large uh, national papers in the UK had interviewed him and he'd said something like, if Bletchley Park were to close, it would be like Nelson's column falling down. So I just thought, okay, so he must be on board. Um, so I, I looked at his profile and luckily he was following me, thank goodness. So it meant that I could send him, so he's following me on Twitter. So I, it meant that I could send him several direct messages, um, you know, like private messages on Twitter. And so I had, in fact, had a few bottles of beer uh, by that time. <laughs> <laughs> so possibly some um, Dutch courage. So because, of course, you know, to me, he's a massive celebrity and who am I? Yeah, you know? no, I get it. Um, yeah. It's not like we're mates or anything. Well, of course we are now, obviously. But um, of, Obviously. <laughs> yeah. But, um, so I sent him several direct messages saying, you know, if you got involved with the British Park campaign, it'd make a massive difference. I'd set up a blog. Um, so I sent him a link to my blog uh, and basically said, please help. And um, then went to bed that night thinking, oh, well, I gave it a go. You know, you never know. And uh, the next morning, I, I got a message saying, oh, I've tweeted, I hope it helps or something like that. And uh, so then I looked uh, at my uh, my mentions on Twitter. And uh, yeah, so Stephen Fry had tweeted a link to my blog. And at that time, I was getting about, I think, 50 hits a day on my blog. And just that one tweet got me 8,000 hits uh, on amazing, Twitter. And, you know, that is several years ago. So I think then he only had like 150,000 followers um, or only. But, you know, like now, I don't know, he's yeah. got several millions. I'm not sure how many. Right. Um, so, yeah, it made a massive impact. And, and that day I became the most retweeted person in Twitter in on Twitter in the world. Um, you know what they call that, Dr. Sue? No. A ripple oh. effect. <laughs> Did you get me on that one? That's so embarrassing. Oh, I'm so happy. <laughs> dear. Oh, dear. Uh, but you know, you yeah, know what's funny about that, though. Yeah. But 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 it's true. I've I've had. That's the funny thing about Twitter, right? Yeah. Um, you every now and then you reach out to a celebrity, if you will, yeah. and they they you know you get lucky and they mention something back. Yeah. And you're thinking, oh, my God, you know, the power of this tool yeah. that I was able to, to speak to them 
once because the reality is they never reply back to you, right? Yeah. Because you're buried in a, in a string of, yeah. you know, a million other texts. Yeah. You were saying, talking about it being early Twitter. So actually it was a lot easier then. So I'm, you know, I'm not saying it was easy. Um, but at the same time, I used to actively look for people that were just joining Twitter that were famous because, you know, that in those days when someone was just joining Twitter, they wanted to talk to people because it was a new thing yeah. and they wanted people exactly. to talk to. So, you know, I would kind of like target high profile MPs who was work was could be related to Bletchley Park, you know, and that kind of thing. There's kind of stories like that in my book um, of, you know, how I used to basically you know the tools that I used or the techniques that I used to build a really big community um to have a big effect and yeah so earlier on I think possibly it was a bit easier because there was so much less kind of noise in quotes uh, on Twitter yeah it's not the fire hydrant of just uh, everything um that as a whole and this is another whole podcast social media what it's evolved into is uh, whether it be take your pick, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, um, you know, go on and on and on. Um, I think it obviously hasn't evolved to what we thought it was going to be. Um, speaking as an American yeah. <laughs> in the current situation yeah. that I live under. Um, uh, I'm not saying anything. <laughs> yeah, you can't, by the way, because thanks for Brexit. Um, but it's fascinating. Yeah, don't make me <laughs> cry. Please don't make yeah, me cry. Don't, I'm not going to make you cry. Um, but it is fascinating, right, what, what that they've evolved into. But using them for good, and, and there still is that aspect in what you did – Here's what I love about it. So obviously the campaign that you did and everything you helped for for saving uh, a national institution or, or site like that, and then to to decide that you're going to write a book um, about it. So a uh, fascinating book, right? I love the book, and we'll have links to that. Um, but what I love about it is even when you wrote a book, you didn't play by the rules. You did it unfunded, and it became the fastest crowdsourced book of all time. Yeah, fastest crowdfunded book ever. <laughs> what the? Heck? And I know that's what you intended, obviously. Yeah. Well, <laughs> after a few beers, when you started uh, <laughs> that process, what what was the? Where did the idea come from to actually write a book about this? Okay, actually, it was just because so many people were asking me what I'd done, uh, <laughs> and I was just there like, if go. I write it all down, yeah. you can buy the book. <laughs> um, I think that was it, really, and, I, and also I still wanted to promote Bletchley Park, right? And I still want to promote Bletchley, yeah, um, because I want people to visit and I want people to support it. So, you know, it, it was partly to get the story down so that I could. I guess for various reasons, really, because I wanted to show social media in a good light because it it couldn't have happened without Twitter. It just could not have happened. So I think we probably lost Bletchley Park without Twitter. Um, so I really wanted that social media story to, to be out there for people to realize that it's not just <laughs> the people that we might have tweeting a lot at the moment that are kind of uh, in the news all the time, you know, that there's also some really great things that have happened and, and like, you know, historic places that have been saved because of Twitter, because of social media. So to get that story out there, it was also to get the story out there because people kept asking me, so what actually did we do and, and what happened and how was it? And, you know, so it kind of answers all those questions. And also I wanted to carry on promoting Bletchley Park because it's a great place and I find it amazing that it's still there uh, and that you can go and visit and 
it's not that dramatically different from how it was during World War Two. So it really is like stepping back in history. And, you know, anything I can do to carry on promoting it, I will do. And so I thought, you know, the book, again, ticked that box for me as well. So your whole life arc or your story arc is, is amazing to me. And, and I promise not to say ripple effect anymore. <laughs> Other than to title this episode that, but this idea of, 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 of taking that first step, whether it be even a decision to, to leave school, to move out, to, to, um, to go into a shelter, because that's a decision, right? Um, to, to go and, and take that math course. Which then leads, you know, eventually yeah. to a PhD, which then leads to an incredibly successful career. Um, yeah. Uh, getting on stage. I love watching your talks, how you actually walk out to the audience and say, I have to pump myself up. So why don't y'all do it too? <laughs> I get that with a <laughs> Southern, by the way, accent, but I love yeah. that you do that, right? Um, yeah. All of these, it's that, it's that initiative to actually do something. Yeah. And, and that's what I absolutely love about you is that it might take a couple of beers and there's nothing <laughs> yeah. wrong with that. Or, or a gin and tonic, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or just, you know, just thought it was good. Yeah. What, you know, but what it takes to actually not think about something and then just catalog it away, but to actually take that step and do. Yeah. And the results can be amazing because, folks, there's a picture of Sue with the Queen. Yeah. Getting her, getting an OBE. That's that's I know when you were growing up. South <laughs> <laughs> Coast, or yeah, you know, not to get dramatic, but when you're sitting. You know, as a 25-year-old, that was not what was running through your brain. No. <laughs> that one day, that's where you would be in life. And the best part is, I can't wait to see what's next. <laughs> yeah. Really. And, and I'm sure every other professor in, in England's like, oh, my God. When that email comes in from Dr. <laughs> Sue Black, they're like, oh, my God. <laughs> now what is she focused yeah. on? And that's the thing I love about you is that I know it's not ending. The next one is sitting out there. Um, and you don't know right. what it is either. That's what I think is fantastic. True. I, I mean, I have to say, I, honestly, I can't stop myself. It's like, <laughs> I feel like and it would be shouldn't. harder to not do it, if you see what I mean, because then my brain would not rest. You know, I wouldn't be happy. Um, so I feel that's, like I, I have to do But it. that's where you're unique. Most people cannot overcome inertia. Most people I know, most companies mm. I know, I actually had a CEO of a very large bank tell me that. As a consultant, I went yeah. and said, what can I do to help you? And he said, help us overcome inertia. We can't make a decision wow. to save our life. We can talk about it all day. Hmm. And most people I know have incredible ideas, yeah. but they can't take that first step. They can't throw the stone. Well, I think those companies need to get me in as a consultant to help them. Excellent. So how can they find out, Dr. Sue? How can our <laughs> listeners find out? <laughs> I'm not even going to go there because I'm going to have links to your website and the book. <laughs> And the videos, because every single one of them is outstanding. Thank you. Um, I, I want to thank you because it's it's neat for both my, my, my son and daughter to look out there and find role models my age that they consider cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not one of them. Yeah, yeah. No, you can't say that. You've created this amazing podcast uh, series, so you can't say that now. Oh, I can say that. Ask my kids. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they'll they'll give you uh, 
They'll give you feedback. Bless them. But yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because like my my, I feel sorry for my kids because so many people say to them, "Oh, your mom's a legend," and they're like, "Yeah, yeah." Like, <laughs> poor kids hear it all the time. <laughs> it must be a bit of a pain at some point. Yeah, you know. Well, here's what I loved about you when I called to say, "Hey, can we um, schedule this?" Um, yeah. This was the email I received, everyone. Um, well, I have a wedding in Lagos that I have. I was just in Orlando getting the Grace Hopper um, <laughs> Award because I was actually in my – I live in Florida, so you were in my neighborhood. I will be in Puerto Rico doing another event. I'm speaking at the UN in Geneva <laughs> later this month if you're going to be there. And I'm thinking, you know, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> What am I doing with my life? I'm <laughs> just no. trying to give you a heads up on my life. No, it's fantastic. <laughs> it's perfect. I, I, you are the only person this month that I can think of that told me, yeah, I'm speaking at the UN in Geneva um, <laughs> in case you're going to be around. I don't think that's come up in conversation yet <laughs> with anyone else. But I know this much. The next time I'm in London, and my company's based out of London, so I'm there quite a bit. Okay, cool. Um, we are definitely going to meet. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> have a beer or two and show pictures of our grandkids and brag. Yeah, yeah, awesome. <laughs> and pick where to throw that. the next stone, by the way. Okay. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> that would be great. Well, Sue, thank you. Tell the plumber he can make noise again. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. I need to go and find out what fell down the stairs. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Hopefully it's not the plumber. <laughs> Carl's just laying down there. <laughs> Thanks. This show is crafted for you by the folks at 11FS. We're building banks for the future. Find out more at 11FS.com. If we hooked you with this episode, be sure to leave us a review on iTunes. Every star helps. Today's episode was edited by Michael Bailey and produced by Laura Watkins, Ollie Judge, and myself. I'm Sam Mall, and this has been Connection Interrupted. Thanks for listening.